Welcome to the new reality edition of Bite Marks Cafe right here on Hawaii Public Radio where we serve you the first bite of today's science, technology, and innovation. I'm Bert Lum, and of course, uh, we've got a lot to talk about, so we'll jump right into our conversation. Find out about what's happening with the Euclid Space Telescope. And of course, with me today, I have Mary Beth Lechak, and she's the Director of Communications and Community Engagement over at the Canada-French Hawaii Telescope. And I've also got Dr. Ken Chambers, Director of the PanStars Observatories. And I want to welcome you both to Bite Marks Cafe. Thank hey, Bert. Thanks for having us on. Now, Mary Beth, I, I, I hope I'm pronouncing your last name correctly. Lechak? Yes, yes, Lechak. Okay, great. We're getting off on a great start. That's good. <laughs> so I, I want to, you know, I, you know, often like to talk about these telescopes, but I haven't had both of you on at the same time. And and maybe this is a great opportunity to, maybe I'll start with uh, Mary Beth. You know, tell us a little bit about what Canada, France, Hawaii does. And, and then I'll go to Ken and, and uh, he can he can tell us about, you know, PanStars 1 and 2 does. So. Mary Beth, what is uh, what is Canada France? How long it's been? A, it's been up there quite a while. So, what what is the typical, uh, let's say, sweet spot for Canada Canada France Hawaii? Yes, as you've mentioned, we have had the incredible privilege of observing from Mauna Kea, um, which we want to express our deep um, mahalo because it is a mountain along with Haleakala of considerable cultural, natural, and ecological significance to Native Hawaiian people. And we acknowledge that since 1979, DFHT and our, and our staff and our broad user community around the world has had the immense privilege to view the universe from this incredible site. One of the things, we specialize in a couple of things. Um, wide field imaging, uh, which is when you look at a really big piece of the sky um, in one camera shot. And so we have a camera called Megacam. It's a it's a wide field optical imager and it's actually the one that we used for Euclid. Its specialization is looking at really big pictures of the sky but also in really blue light, so the ultraviolet. Mauna Kea is uh, exceptional in the ultraviolet because of its high high elevation and so more of that ultraviolet light comes down and at the summit um, than anywhere else, um, particularly in Hawaii. We also have two um, spectrographs that are essentially planet hunters. So they take the light from one star, break it down into its component rainbow, and look for planets around stars, magnetic fields of stars, kind of answering some of those big questions of are we alone and what's out there. And those instruments have actually had some really exciting um, results coming out lately. We have an infrared camera, so to look at what I say is essentially night vision goggles for space. So mm-hmm. it looks at a really wide area of of the sky, not as big as our visible light camera, a little bit smaller, but still equally as equally as unique in the world. And then we've got this really cool instrument that does a little bit of both. It's a Fourier transform imaging spectrograph, which means it uses the hand-waving mass that is Fourier transforms to take an image and turn that into a whole bunch of spectrum. So we really specialize in, as a four-meter telescope, taking big pictures of space in unique wavelengths and taking um, spectra of individual stars that are in desperate need of astronomers knowing more about their magnetic fields or about their planet boosting capabilities. Did I hear you say Fourier transforms? 
Yes. Wow, you know, I'm I'm so happy that we got to actually say that on on Bite Mark Cafe. I haven't heard that since I was doing my my masters. Well, I'm I'm very happy that I can bring that word to you again. <laughs> um, it's, the instrument is sitel, and it's 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 a really really cool instrument that's exceptionally hard in my job to describe what it do, what it does. So, Marybeth, uh, you said that the Canada France Hawaii has been around since the what the late seventies. What kind of investments have been made over the years? Well, the lifeblood of any telescope is its, its instrumentation. And mm-hmm. so one of the things that CFHD has done exceptionally well over the 40-plus decades that it's been in operations is looking for what we can do differently and unique. So, you know, we started off on photographic plates, and then from there we moved to tiny imagers, mm-hmm. and now we have some of the no longer the largest uh, cameras in the world. I think that that might still be held by Ken over at Panstars. But we look really, really wide, and we work in really close collaboration with other facilities, such as Panstars, doing a lot of follow-up data or follow-up observations to some of the really interesting things that they're discovering in our night sky. Well, that's a good uh, segue to, to Ken to tell us a little bit about Panstars 1 and 2. Panstars is an observatory with with two telescopes. PS1 has been uh, in full operation since 2010, and PS2 uh, since about uh, 2017 with with all aspects of it working. Um, And we survey the sky uh, every night we can. Of course, there are cloudy nights. Mm -hmm. And we compare that. We've built up this image of the sky, and we each time we take uh, a new picture, we compare it with uh, the old uh, data that we have, we look for changes, and so Panstars is very good at finding uh, near-Earth objects, but uh, things moving in our solar system. So we find lots of near-Earth objects, potentially hazardous objects. We also find a lot of comets. Some people may remember comet Panstars. Mm-hmm. Um, but we also find a lot of supernova. Uh, we do a very good job with cat. We just produced a catalog of light curves of, of, of thousands of supernovas. So it's very productive in this time domain. But then we have another use of the data, which is relevant to this, and that's we can take all those years of data and combine them together um, in the computer and build a very deep image. And then Panstars can contribute uh, as a colleague to the kinds of images that can be taken with the Canada France Hawaii telescope and with the Subaru telescope. So this uh, union of these three telescopes, there's four teams uh, spread across the three telescopes, uh, uh, doing this um, is just a wonderful collaboration. So, so tell me, how did uh, your respective telescopes and Panstars is on on Haleakala and you know Canada France Subaru are on uh, Mauna Kea, <clears throat> but how did the relationship develop with uh, the folks at the the European Union and and uh, Euclid? Because that's a that's a, a European Union project, right? Yeah. Yes. So it, it kind of started with um, Jean-Charles Couillandre. And so Jean-Charles is a former CFHT resident astronomer. He lived in Hawaii here for 12 years, mm-hmm. specializing with Megacam. Um, and when Jean-Charles went back to France, one of the reasons that he did was to work on the Euclid space mission. And so um, some choices were made in the Euclid space launch when they were looking at how to design um, the space mission, the question was really, when you're going to space, you don't have room for everything. You can't update down the road. And so um, 
they made a decision um, to not have as many filters, to not have as many colors mm-hmm. of light that they could image in discrete categories. And so Jean-Charles worked with, starting with CFHT, to start the Canada-French Imaging Survey, knowing that they were going to miss some of this ultraviolet light um, to be able to utilize Mauna Kea and the incredible site and the um, incredible capabilities of Megacam to really specialize in bringing that window of the universe. And then that is when Panstars enters the story. And, and you know, Ken, I do want to have you talk a little bit about the actual uh, launch because it took place just not too long ago on, on I think, July 1st, and, and how uh, perhaps, you know, the contribution of your respective telescopes uh, to the overall project. But I want to hold that thought. We'll be right back after this short break to continue our conversation with Mary Beth Lechak, Director of Communications over at the Canada-France Hawaii Telescope and Dr. Ken Chambers, Director over at the Panstar Observatories. This is Bite Marks Cafe. Support for Bite Marks Cafe comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor Hastings and Pleadwell, a communication company. Welcome back. This is Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. If you're just joining us, we're talking to Mary Beth Lechak, and she is the Director of Communications and Community Engagement over the Canada-France Telescope uh, on Mauna Kea, and we've got Dr. Ken Chambers, director of the Panstar Observatories, uh, located on Haleakala, and we're talking about the Euclid Space Telescope. And right before the break, uh, Ken, so did you watch the launch? And and uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, uh, that yeah, would have been yeah, pretty I exciting. Yeah, I watch. I'm a, I'm an old uh, space launch fan, and so it was it was very exciting, and uh, everything went. Smoothly, it went on the first uh, uh, window. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was fabulous. It's on its way uh, to its position at the second Lagrange point. Uh, should get there by the end of the month, um, and you know all the instruments are being checked out. Uh, so it's very exciting because people, you know, uh, many of us have been working on this for many years. Some people have been working on it for twenty years. So it's very exciting when the launch uh, went well. And 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 where did they? Where does the the Europeans? Where did they launch from? They launched from Cape Canaveral they, they, on a, a SpaceX Falcon okay. 9. Okay. Oh, okay. That was a change. Originally, uh, many years ago, they expected to launch with a, uh, a Russian booster. Mm-hmm. Um, and then things happened, and they switched to SpaceX. And in terms of, let's say, you know, for people comparing telescopes, can you, can you share a little bit about the... I know there were some... Uh, constraints with with uh, Euclid. How does it compare to something like a uh, like a James Webb? Oh well, it's, it takes uh, high resolution images, not not quite as good as Hubble or, or, or uh, the James Webb Space Telescope. Um, and Hubble and the James Webb Space Telescope are very good at the, the needle in the haystack, mm-hmm. focusing mm-hmm. in and getting a huge amount of data on a very small region of space. But they can't survey the whole sky. They'll never be able to survey more than about 1% of the sky. So, you know, the, the astronomers have to pick their targets very carefully, et cetera. So Euclid is designed to come through the whole sky, like Panstars and CFHT and, and, and Subaru. Um, and it will take just black and white images 
uh, again, because it will take it'll it'll still take six years to do the the, the whole extragalactic sky mm-hmm. uh, in just that one band. So they needed this color. So the ground-based observatories, and particularly these these Hawaii observatories, CFHT, Subaru, uh, and and pan stars, are contributing uh, five colors uh, in in different filters, and the the color is what's so crucial because. If you take if you take a picture of a galaxy and you have uh, five bands of color, five different colors of it, mm-hmm. you can use that to determine a, a pretty good distance to the galaxy. It's not super precise, but it's pretty good. So if you do that, these surveys are surveying billions and billions, tens of billions of galaxies, and you get a distance for each one, then you have a three-dimensional map of the galaxies in the universe, and that's just really uh really be fantastic. We have local maps of the three-dimensional distribution of galaxies, but not something that extends uh, this deep and this wide. This is really going uh, uh, is a, a big step in being able to make a three-dimensional map of our universe. And, and when do you expect, uh, I mean, a lot of the data that, that uh, you from PanStars and, uh, you know, Canada, France, Hawaii, have been collecting have been have been you know collecting over years how soon will data from euclid actually be contributing to that body of of information so they, they've got a couple of months of, of checkout of, of verification and testing and and uh they have to do a lot of things very very carefully because it, it's a uh, euclid's um reason for existence is it's really good image quality. And the reason for that is <clears throat> it's going to image the sky like at almost space telescope uh, resolution, mm-hmm. but it will have extremely stable image quality. And so it can measure if there's slight distortions uh, in the shapes of galaxies. And this happens because the universe, uh, as you might have heard, is full of dark matter. And so one of the goals of Euclid is to make a three-dimensional map of that dark matter. So when you're looking at a distant galaxy in the background, the light coming from that galaxy is distorted because it's bent around the dark matter in the intervening space. Mm-hmm. And that dark matter is, is centered in galaxies, in clusters of galaxies, and in superclusters of galaxies. And so if you uh, take all the information in, in, in one shell out there, uh, and work out all the dark matter that's between us and that shell, and then you do that for another shell and another shell, like an onion, and you can build up this homographic map of what the dark matter looks like. So now we have two three-dimensional maps, a three-dimensional map of all the galaxies mm-hmm. and a three-dimensional map of all the dark matter. And that's going to be crucial to sort of figuring out what the dark matter is. We don't know what the dark matter is, right? 5% of the stuff in the universe is normal material. That's the stuff that we're used to in everyday life. It's in the periodic table. It's dark matter. It has gravity. It attracts uh, normal matter by its gravity. But we can't see it, and we don't know what its fundamental nature is. We just don't know what it is. And then there's a, and, and it makes up <clears throat> uh, about 27% of, what, of the material in the universe. And the remaining uh, 68% is this mysterious dark energy, which is repulsive, it it drives the accelerated expansion of the universe, but it's perfectly smooth. It has no structure. Mm -hmm. So 
the dark matter has all this complicated structure falling into galaxies and clusters of galaxies and superclusters. Mm -hmm. Then the normal matter falls in, forms the stars and the galaxies that we see that, that, that by uh, light that we can detect them. Um, but with Euclid, we'll have this three-dimensional map of the galaxies and a three-dimensional map of the dark matter. And then we can begin to tackle uh, the dark energy. And that's something that's uh, going to be very exciting. So, so Ken, I mean, you, you've you've got me uh, you got me mesmerized. So, with with the mapping of dark matter, I mean, will that help to give scientists a way of perhaps getting a better insight into what exactly dark matter is? It it can help because there, there's aspects of it that we just don't understand, right? It's obviously we want to detect dark matter in the laboratory, right? And there's uh, the physicists have many experiments to try to do that. But there may be clues, subtle clues. The way it interacts with itself uh, may uh, lend clues to trying to figure out exactly what kind of stuff it is. Mm -hmm. right? right now, it's a complete mystery. We have no idea what the dark matter is. So anything that can help. So this difference between how the dark matter is distributed and how the normal matter is distributed can start to give us a clue as to what the stuff is. And if there's any further interactions, then than just the straight gravity that we see. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Mary Beth, you know, when, when um, you talk about uh, Euclid providing primarily black and white data and with uh, Canada France and, and PanStars providing sort of the, the color, what is it that, what is it that uh, you can then derive with, you know, these uh, color, colored layers? Well, this, this, so the, the color gives us the distances to the galaxies, and Euclid gives us the shapes, that gives us this three-dimensional map of the dark matter and of the uh, normal matter of the, of the galaxies. Um, but then together, there's this third component, the dark energy. And by having these three-dimensional maps of the matter and the dark matter and, and measuring them um, very carefully, we can start to, we can derive the fundamental uh, characteristics of the universe, so that the properties of, the un of our universe are described by a, a dozen parameters. And so by using these two things together, we'll get a much better measurement of these, this is called the standard model of cosmology, mm -hmm. the parameters that describe our cosmology. Now, we've had that for about 20 years. That's this picture of 5% normal matter, 27% uh, dark matter, and 68% and, uh, uh, dark energy. Mm -hmm. We've had that picture for nearly 20 years. But it started to have some cracks in it. What we measure nearby in these distributions of galaxies and the expansion rate of the universe is different than what we see uh, in the microwave, where we can look back and see the universe at a very early age in, what, in what's called the cosmic microwave background. So it's like you're measuring the parameters at two different places. So it's like building a bridge from one side to another side, and you meet in the middle, and, and your bridge doesn't quite match up. Right? That's what we're finding. And it could be that we've just made a mistake at one end or the other. Or it could be that the dark matter is, uh, sorry, that the dark energy is something different than what Einstein first uh, proposed. Mm -hmm. Right? And that would be very exciting. That would be, mean that there is, uh, that the dark energy is fundamentally different than what we think. It would open up a new world of physics, new insight into the universe and what's going on. In the, in the very early stages of the universe, in the Big Bang itself. And so it, that's, that's very exciting. So 
there may be that, that tension between these different measurements is telling us that, that are made at different parts, one in the very early universe and one in the, in the more or less local universe, may be a clue that there's something else going on besides, besides the normal matter, the dark matter, and the dark energy. Right. Maybe the dark energy has changes over time. Maybe there's something else going on. You know, another thing I wanted to ask you, Ken, is, uh, you know, some of the, the computational aspects of all the data that you're now describing. I want to hold that thought, though. We'll be, um, we'll be right back in a short break to continue our conversation, both with Mary Beth Lechak, and uh, she's the Director of Communications and Community Engagement over the Canada-France-Hawaii Telescope, and Dr. Ken Chambers, Director of the Pan-Star Observatories. This is Bite Marks Cafe. Support for Bite Marks Cafe comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributors, Bavarian Motor Experts, and Chaminade University. Welcome back. This is Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. If you're just joining us, <clears throat> we're talking to Mary Beth Lechak. She's the Director of Communications and Community Engagement over at the Canada France Hawaii Telescope and Dr. Ken Chambers, Director of the Pan Stars Observatories. <clears throat> right before the break, we were talking about some of the, you know, the colorizing, the data, the, you know, what con uh, con contributes to uh, analyzing the, the, the universe, whether it's the, the visible universe, the dark matter, the dark energy. And Ken, I mean, you know, what you're describing is, I would imagine, pretty computationally complex. <laughs> so you're making it easy in terms of, you know, just the colorizing, the layers, and, you know, interpreting. But I'm sure there must be just a boatload of data that's being analyzed. And, and oh, where, that's, where's that's this happening? Exactly and who's, right. I mean, you know, there's, who's... <laughs> there's, there's art. There's these uh, five bands, these four, uh, four surveys taking five bands uh, of data on the, the three Hawaii telescopes. And of those PANSTARs, because, again, because our, our, our main motivation in PANSTARs is to find these near-Earth objects, so we survey the sky very quickly with, with short exposures. So we have much more data, you know, and then we combine years and years and years of this data mm -hmm. uh, together to make the deep map to compete with the maps produced by Canada, France, Hawaii, and, and Subaru. So our data volume is much larger, right? Um, several hundred times more more data, and that's a lot of data. Mm -hmm. So that's a huge uh, data processing effort, and we have a very large cluster at the University of Hawaii uh, Computing Center, um, which handles all of that and looks at the data every night and does the differencing to try to find the moving objects in the solar system, mm -hmm. like the supernova out in the universe. But then there's also the data analysis, as you were mentioning, of, of the Euclid data. That's a huge effort, and you've got to put the two together um, and so there's one of the things about Euclid is that put an enormous amount of work into studying the potential sources of error, the random sources of error, and, and what's often more important, the systematic sources of error. So they've done a huge amount of work on doing that so that they get these measurements of the cosmological properties that we can say what they are and what the, what the error bars on them are mm -hmm. with, with a lot of precision. And so... There's a huge amount of effort, and they're doing one aspect of that that I think is really interesting that I haven't seen before. They're making all the results blind to the scientists that are doing it. This is something that medical doctors and medical researchers and stuff have done for a while because they realize that humans have biases 
And those biases can come in in lots of ways, and you don't want that to affect your result. And because humans might have biases about what universe model they prefer, mm-hmm. you have the same problem. You've got humans in the mix. So they're actually generating a whole bunch of realizations of the Euclid data, and the scientists don't know which one is the real one. They take the real one, computer adds a whole bunch of uh, little tweaks to it to change it a little bit here and there, and the scientists have to analyze all of those different realizations of that data, only one of which is the real one, and they don't know which one it is. They're kept blind to that oh, uh-huh. until they've finished their analysis, and then they'll be told, oh, it's this one. And so that way, any human uh, psychological bias as to what the answer, the hope is that that will be removed from it. So they're really being very sophisticated about this. And well, that's great. And Mary Beth, I mean, in terms of uh, getting, <laughs> let's say, students involved, local students that might be interested in, in astronomy. I mean, what would you advise them to do to perhaps, you know, get into the get into the analytical world of, of uh, data and, you know, all this interesting sort of layers of data from pan stars to Canada, France to Euclid? Oh, there are so many things students can do. They can, I will probably regret this, they can email me. Um, <laughs> okay. uh, there's also the Canadian Astronomy Data Center. So as Ken mentioned, you know, there's massive archives. All of our data is going to go to the Canadian uh, Astronomical Data Center, the CADC. I know that they're working on some of the Euclid work that Ken just mentioned. All of their data is downloadable to the public, uh, free. Anybody can download it. Uh, the Keck Observatory has a data of art, data archive. All of these things um, can can be done and accessed by students. There's a lot of tools online. I know that uh, there have been some really great science fair projects from high school students. One of the students that that I work with um, from Molokai, she mm-hmm. recently published. Uh, she was a co-author on a paper from uh, data taken when she was in high school using the East Asian Observatory. Um, I know that uh, there are lots and lots of astronomers who would be delighted to work with high school students and younger. J.D. Armstrong on Maui um, from IFA has a really wonderful program where he's worked with students as early as um, middle school through some of these programs. Data, it sounds scary, uh, there's a lot of stuff that can be done at a really simple level, an introductory level that builds students up and builds their confidence up to being able to do some of these really incredible projects and, you know, joining research teams or starting their own project to, to look in the, in the universe in a completely different way. I work with a lot of really fantastic high schoolers through the Monica Scholars Program that I run, and every kid in this state, you know, public school, private school, charter school is capable of doing this work. All it takes is is an interest and someone to kind of help guide them along, whether it's a teacher or it's someone who works at IFA, one of the observatories. And this is not just for astronomy. There's a lot of information out there for students in all of the science fields and a wealth of really great content experts in Hawaii who would be happy to work with students. So is there a program, like, you know how there's so many robotics programs? I mean, there's a a wealth of STEM types of uh, programs. Is there something that you could point out to students listening that they might want to get involved and perhaps uh, learn something about astronomy? So I would say that, so I run a program called Mauna Kea Scholars that is for public high school students. 
I only work with a handful of of schools at the moment, but if there is a student who is really passionate about this, they can get my contact information and I would be happy to have a conversation with them and, you know, see who can help them if it's not me. Sounds good. And, uh, Mary Beth, send me the link for the Euclid uh, uh, <clears throat> data that you want me to share, and I'll put that up on our show notes. Mary Beth uh, Lechek is the Director of Communications and Community Engagement over at the Canada, Canada-France-Hawaii Telescope. And, of course, Dr. Ken Chambers is the Director of the Pan-STARRS Observatories, and I want to thank them both for such a great uh, conversation about astronomy. And, of course, if you... Uh, I want to thank you for listening to Bite Marsh Cafe. You can join us next week when we're, we'll talk a little bit more about AI and that oncoming AI tsunami. If you miss any part of this edition, you can find the podcast of tonight's show on bitemarshcafe.org. Our engineer is David Chong. You can catch the, us on HPR1 every Wednesday or anytime via the HPR app or your favorite podcast application. You stay safe. You stay awesome. We'll see you next week on another edition of Bite Marsh Cafe. Bite Marsh Cafe.